Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, John Papa and Ward Bell talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts, John and Ward. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 14. And this week, we're going to be talking about unproductive code reviews or how to keep them productive. And I've got my co-host, Ward. Here I am. And today we have a guest, Chris Fritz. How are you doing, Chris? Very well. And Chris, you are an educator turned engineer, member of the VUE team, and a front-end consultant. And you are up in the running for one of the shortest bios I've had to read on the show. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a simple man. You are. You are. Uh, and for those who don't know, Chris and I both are on the Views on VUE podcast. Um and I'm not even sure what a website is, but I'm sure if you Google that, you'll find it. <laughs> but uh, Chris is also one of the nicest people on the internet that I've talked to and is oh. a wealth of knowledge about view and architecture. Thank you. Same goes for you. I, I don't know Ward very well, uh, so my, I, I withhold my judgment for now. <laughs> That's good. I've known Ward for nine years, and I'm still withholding my judgment. So. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll come to a judgment soon enough. <laughs> And we like to kick off our show, Chris, by reading from the mailbag. And Ward, you're our mail getter. I am. <clears throat> and I'm rummaging deep into the bag, and I'm going to just pull something out arbitrarily here. Uh, and I have one from uh, somebody named Arnold Schwarzenegger. And um, he, said, <laughs> he says, Chris, I'm back. I told you I'd be back, and I'm back, and I want to know. <clears throat> What's with the code review? Why do them at all? So that's what he said. What do you got for us about code reviews? Do you actually do them? I don't. So, so, so nice of Arnie. I call him Arnie because we're friends, uh, to, to reach out. Yeah, we, we talk about this stuff all the time, me and my celebrity friends. Uh, so I like to do code reviews because it's an opportunity to help the team grow. First of all, like, I think one of the most obvious ways, uh, that code reviews uh, improve your app is by making sure your your application is actually going to work the way that you expect it to. Uh, a lot of teams refer to this as sort of a sanity check, you know, to make sure that there wasn't something you were overlooking or you didn't, you know, do something uh, really odd that is going to have consequences later on. Because uh, we all make mistakes, we're all humans, we're all fallible, and no matter how much experience we have, I find that it's always useful to get someone else's eyes on the problem. So are these one-on-one -on -one sessions or do you like all gather as a group or or how do you conduct them? Are uh, there dark cloaks in a dark yeah, room with yeah. bright lights? Right. Uh, do you put somebody behind a screen so you don't know what their, what their code looks like? No, but no, I mean, seriously, how, uh, uh, how do you use code reviews? Is it a one-on-one -on -one process? Uh, you know, how do you, how do you set it up? Yeah, great question. Well, as a, as a remote consultant, most of my code reviews are done remotely. Uh, and they're also done like asynchronously oftentimes across time zones. And so instead of like meeting face to face, even virtually, what we'll usually do is, you know, in a system like uh, GitHub or GitLab, we'll leave comments on the pull request or merge request, uh, and either request some changes or, uh, decide that it's good to be merged and maybe merge it and also leave some comments to that person 
has some room to improve. That's that can be uh, pretty tough. Uh, you know, things that people write can be easily misunderstood. Yeah, but but sometimes, like if there's something that's difficult to explain, uh, you will meet face to face. Like especially if there's uh, like big architecture changes that you think might be needed. Uh, sometimes it's useful to to meet and, and talk through those in real time. Yeah, I found that doing code reviews is always. Uh it's almost like that cartoon that's famously passed around, which I'm forgetting who made it. Maybe it was XKCD, where you know there's the one side of the view is uh, you want your code reviews to look like this, where there's only so many curse words thrown out of the room when someone's looking at your code, right? But mm-hmm. in reality, that that can actually be the case sometimes with code reviews because it's almost like people dread them, you know, going in and having somebody else look at their code. Uh, whether it's defensiveness or it's just purely past experience of somebody ripping into them for doing something the way they didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, Have you been part of any of those? Oh, absolutely. Uh, That can feel really vulnerable when you're on the receiving end of a code review. And actually like still, even, even today, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of reviews on my code and a lot of reviews on my writing too. um, Cause I, I read a lot of uh, documentation and other resources, but I still find like an impulse sometimes to get defensive uh, and especially when I put a lot of work and a lot of thought into something, you know, I think there's a, a little part of me that wants to scream, don't you understand? I am an artiste. <laughs> uh, you know, cause sometimes people won't understand the, the way that I did something and, and sometimes the way that it comes across online, especially, uh, because there's, there's a negative bias in text communication. Like when we, when we hear someone say like, why did you do this? We read that more often as like, why did you do this? Yes. <laughs> Rather than, oh, why did you do this? Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes we think of it reading it as it's, oh my gosh, this person's trying to attack me. How can I defend myself? And yeah. I often find when I read those and I feel that way, the first thing I have to do is stop mm-hmm. and not respond right away. Yeah. Because your impulse response is almost always a bad one, right? And you're just making that problem worse. Absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, I, I totally recommend that. Like if you if you start feeling emotional, I, I definitely recommend taking a break. Um, yeah, because otherwise uh, things can just escalate. Do you find that um – so, so I get it. There's the asynchronous thing. So this is the really the part about leaving comments, and and I guess there's that old uh, recommendation that's still a good one about. Um, well, it's, it involves an expletive, so I'm trying to figure out the crap sandwich where it's important to begin with a positive, then you lay it on, and then then you kind of come back. and And I know it's a it's sort of hackneyed, and it's uh, people can do it in an obvious way, and it's really insulting when it's too obvious, but it's still I, I find that, do, do you use that technique anyway? Because I find it useful. Like, I want to begin with Chris, that was that was an important thought, and you're on to really onto something. What you just said made no sense to me at all, but I really appreciate that you said it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I won't I won't use the, the sandwich necessarily, where, you know, I give, like, one compliment, and then some negative feedback, and then another compliment. But I, I do try to make sure that I'm pointing out the things that I really love. You know, even if it's just something like, I, I just really love this variable name. Like, it's completely clear what this is. Like, that's, that's something to point out as well, you know, so that people know what to keep doing, not just what to change. But I, I haven't, I think I'm, I do a pretty decent job at this most of the time now. Uh, but I definitely had some rough areas, uh, earlier in my career, like, uh, especially like a, a lot of times, 
I'll give sometimes like 30 code reviews in a day, uh, which is, which is a lot. So I've done like many thousands of code reviews by this point. And I've had like a, a new dev on a team, like ask me after their, their first week on the job, uh, getting my code reviews, just, do you hate me? <laughs> because like it, it really felt that way to them that I just like hated everything that they produced because I always found areas for improvement, even when I merged their code right away. But I didn't communicate the purpose of those code reviews. Uh, and I think, and I think that's really important. And there were some other things that I wasn't doing at that time that can help you come across as uh, a lot friendlier. Uh, so for example, I try to abuse the heck out of emojis right now. Uh, like it's way, way better to come across as weird than mean. Like seriously, like if you can, you can use like tons of like happy face emojis and, um, you know, the little tadas and, and all sorts of stuff. And you, you might come across as like really strange, but it's way better than people on your team thinking that you hate them. And I, yeah, yeah. Cause you can't really, you know, in writing, you can't, the, people can't see your face. And I guess that's the substitute. Yeah. But they can see an emoji. They can see an emoji. Yeah. So that I, I agree with you. This is something I battled with a lot uh, at a place where I was in charge of not only doing code reviews, but setting up how they were going to work for many teams. And one of the struggles I ran with, uh, and there's many struggles, but one of the struggles I ran with, which is a little strange. I'm curious how you deal with this, Chris, if you've seen it. The leadership at the company was more interested in getting the work done and out the door. Uh, and they hired a lot of consultants and they wanted just to get things done. And they didn't really see the value in making sure that everybody was brought along uh, and, you know, told, uh, this was a great thing you did here. That's a great thing you did there. Let's do more of that, you know, and using kind of nice words to kind of bring people along with their code reviews. And that made it difficult because you're up against the wall. I get that in the timeline side. But if you don't leave time for the human factor, I found, I think what you're saying here too is if you don't bring them along with you, they end up less motivated and less productive. Yeah. So, I mean, if efficiency is the focus, like it, it just doesn't make sense to not take into account that the people working for you are people. Uh, and I, I find that I'm in a little bit of an advantage uh, as a consultant in that when people bring me in, like they know that I've, I've seen a lot, I've seen things. <laughs> And they, they trust me a little bit more when I tell them, like, in all the teams that I've worked with, like, this will help you, like, be productive and ship faster. Like, I know what your goals are, uh, or if I don't know, then I'll, I'll ask them what their goals are. But no matter what they are, I, I know for a fact that they want to build a great app and they want to keep talent on the team. And if they want to do those things, then they, they have to treat people well. Yeah, that's so true. I, I can't tell you how many times I've gone somewhere. Uh, and as a consultant, I get the same feeling. But then when you're an employee of the company, it's almost like you're immediately devalued. And, oh, you can't possibly know how to do that. So uh, I think you're right. As a consultant, you have that ability to walk in. And they probably don't even bring you in unless they know there is a problem. And they think you can help solve it. Yeah, oftentimes. So we're talking about teams where the, the people really know each other or are going to have to know each other because they're going to work together. Uh, I, I'm just bringing that out because I want to distinguish that from from the other kind of code reviews that we do, which is like if you own an open source project, you're constantly dealing with issues and commits or, you know, PRs from people you don't know you'll never work with or you're probably never going to work with. And that's a that's a some of the same issues are involved there, but they're different. 
Uh, do you agree with that distinction? And are we indeed talking about the, the, the teams that actually are working with each other on a sustained basis? Well, I'd say that a lot of these things are, are sometimes even more important. Like I, I use a lot of emoji and code reviews in open source as well, because it's so easy to just completely turn someone off from your project. And now that contributor isn't going to be interested in contributing anymore. Yeah, and not even that, but just the people who will look at that. Like the people who are trying to get involved and thinking yeah. about it, when they see negativity in GitHub comments... It's like, man, I want no part of that. <laughs> yeah, yep. I, I agree. There's a tremendous overlap, but I guess where I was going to go with that is if it's on a team, I want to. Uh, I I feel like I got to have a personal interaction. You know, face. I don't mean necessarily face to face. Maybe it has to be in a video conference. And I'm wondering if you feel the same way, because they're never going to. You know, uh, well, and I can't seem to ever write any. It do I do some of these things too? But I, if I don't talk to the person and they hear my voice and stuff, I feel like I'm never going to get there. I don't know. Are you able to get past that, or do you actually make sure that's part of your process too? Yeah, I actually have people that I've been working with for years sometimes that I've never talked to in real time, uh, but we we have a good relationship and we work well together. And something that is nice about Text communication is you have time to think about it, you know, whereas you don't necessarily have time in a, in a real time conversation. And one other, one other thing that's a little bit different is that when you're working in open source or a lot of times when you're working on a, a team that is really global and there are a lot of cultural differences that you have to take into account and also language differences, you don't have to worry about uh, not coming across as well as you want to, because you don't speak that language as a first language. Um, and you don't have to worry about sometimes like using idioms that people aren't going to understand and they're going to be too afraid to ask what you mean because, you know, they don't want to halt the conversation or they don't want to interrupt you. You know, with online asynchronous communication, uh, there's no like interrupting. And so, in some ways, it's simpler. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I've had some interactions with a remote team where it, the text communication, I could look for the word, the text communication, I guess, when you do it through like GitHub issues and comments and PRs and things, uh, it didn't start out great, but it ended up really good. And usually in the beginning, a lot of it is a little bit of a dance, right, of getting to know the style of each other and what to look for. Uh, and it Every time the code is improved throughout the process, uh, including my own. But the one thing I always seem to struggle with in the beginning is when you're trying to get people on the same page in a team, when you just come together, you don't know each other well, there's always that dance in the beginning of how do I communicate correctly with this person? Because not everybody receives the same information in the same way. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you know, when you're doing 30 of these a day, how do you think through that? How do I think through like adjusting my communication for different people? Yeah, especially when you're not sure who you're talking to sometimes, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I don't adjust my communication that much for different people. I, I sort of use a, a lowest common denominator. So because I'm, I'm working with so many people uh, internationally and often who don't speak English as a first language, and sometimes they would even claim that, you know, they don't speak English. You know, they, they feel that unconfident in their English that they they don't even... Uh, they don't trust themselves to come across well in that language most of the time. 
So I, I try to use really simple language uh, and I try to really clearly describe uh, what I mean instead of uh, making uh, assumptions about what they know. And I, I try to leave out a lot of like idioms and cultural references that some people might not get. Now, this is a little bit easier from, for me because I, I grew up in, in an international school. So like there weren't really a lot of like common cultural touch bases that we could all use, uh, in our conversation. So my, my language naturally just sort of has fewer idioms than. Most people's, uh, you know, if they grew up in the United States or in uh, the UK or something like that. In other words, you issue obfuscation. That was a joke. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I guess I wouldn't use those exact words. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't, but, I couldn't um, resist. I had to just throw that one in there. Oh my! <laughs> well, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's podcast is sponsored by NativeScript, a free and open-source JavaScript framework for building truly native iOS and Android apps. With NativeScript, you code in JavaScript or TypeScript using the popular frameworks Angular and Vue to leverage the power of native APIs and UIs. NativeScript is a lot like React Native, but for Angular and Vue. With NativeScript, you use the tools and techniques you already know, like CSS and NPM, to build native apps for multiple platforms from a single code base. Check it out at nativescript.org slash realtalkjs and get started with NativeScript today using just your web browser and a smartphone. And we're back. And Chris, one of the topics that we talked about before we did started the show up today was about conventions. And I know this is something you know and you believe in deeply because uh, you also help write or were you the main author or a co-author of the Style Guide Review? Yeah, main author, but I, I worked with a lot of people on that to make sure these were actually good conventions for the entire community. You know, we don't want to be too opinionated where like, oh, yeah, this is what I personally prefer. But, you know, maybe not everybody would. And it, it certainly doesn't help you like build a robust app or maybe doesn't have anything to do with you. So, for example, you're not going to find any opinions on like, you know, semicolons versus no semicolons in your JavaScript in the style guide. And that's, I mean, the style guide review is, is um, that's one specific style guide, but you mentioned this for conventions for the teams as well during code reviews. H how do you address conventions or lack thereof, or maybe too strict conventions? Yeah, great question. So there are a few tools that I use and also some like more like interpersonal strategies. Uh, some of the tools that I use is I, I like to like lint absolutely everything. So in most projects, I'll use at the very least, uh, ESLint, StyleLint, MarkdownLint, and Prettier. And, and all of that just helps you make sure that no one can, can do anything wrong. Um, you know, quote unquote wrong, anything that would be corrected in a code review, at least in terms of style, because that's really like the most motivating thing. Like when you, when you work on something, uh, really hard and then a code review comes back and says, Oh, you're actually missing a space right after this bracket here. And then you've probably already moved on to something else and you have to, you know, stop your flow, come back had that space, commit it, and then push it up again. Like that, that just feels yucky to get that code review. And it feels yucky to give that code review too. Like you feel like a jerk. Yes. Yeah. Both sides of that. And 
we actually worked that in, not those exact tools, but I uh, worked in those kind of things into our CI process so that before you were even allowed to put a PR in, uh, which is when we did a lot of our code reviews, if that didn't pass those tests, then the PR never made it to the code review. Uh, and it was a great way to alleviate the person doing the review, maybe you in this case, from having to say, look, you got to go back and do this thing because the spaces are indents or whatever. Uh, and it put it back on the person to say, oh, you know what? This thing just caught 12 different linting issues. Let me fix those and then submit it. Right. It's not personal then. Yeah. Totally takes out the personal. And it also stops wasting time because they think they're done and they want to go home for the weekend. <laughs> Right. And yeah. they're like, wait a minute, I've got linting errors. That's not good. Yeah. And, and I actually like to do that linting even before, uh, even before the, the pull request or merge request process, uh, or before it would get to, you know, uh, some kind of CI process, continuous integration. How do you enforce that though? So with, with pre-commit hooks, uh, there's a, a project that I like to use called Yorkie. Uh, which yeah, is love uh, a fork of Husky, which allows you to set <laughs> uh, Git hooks in your package.json. And combining that with a project called Lint Staged allows me to lint all of the files that are staged for commit, but only those files. And this is a really important distinction because sometimes as a project grows and you get to like tons and tons and tons of files, it might take like a minute or two or a few minutes or even more sometimes to run, uh, you know, all of your linting and all of your tests. And what happens is that people just don't do that. <laughs> they don't. You're right. <laughs> because they, they feel pretty sure that everything works and that they didn't make any mistakes. Um, and so this way, no matter what editor someone is using, uh, you can get that linting done and you can even with a lot of these tools, there's an automatic fix option. You know, usually with like dash dash fix on the command line or in prettier's case, dash dash write. Uh, and that just will automatically fix those mistakes for them, those style quote unquote mistakes, because it's not the, the convention that you've all agreed on, at least. Uh, and I also, on that pre-commit hook, like to run related unit tests. So, for example, just has uh, a command line option called uh, dash dash find related which will find any unit tests related to this file and run those unit tests, which is so cool. So that, that way you're not running your entire unit test suite, but you're, you're running the tests that are related to uh, any files that you've changed in, in that commit. That is nice because you're right. I, I've worked on some big apps where if you ran all the unit tests in every commit and I commit maybe 50 to 100 times a day. So you would be running, running these unit tests in some case that might take five minutes to run and that could kill you. Yeah. But doing related ones could considerably cut that down, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you could even, you could even use limp staged to like stage files as you go and, and run unit tests, um, you know, just for your stage files there, if you want. Uh, in those cases, like most test runners have something like a, like a watch command that will, you know, check to see when a file is changed and then rerun the, the related tests. But sometimes those watch commands, uh, will just run the entire test suite over again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which isn't very helpful. Yeah. I like to pre-commit hooks a lot. Uh, I admittedly don't run unit tests on them, but I do like using them in my projects to run the linting and the prettier and the style type things like you're talking about. Uh, it just takes that whole human factor out of it. Yeah. And I, 
I still keep it in CI because I want to make sure. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's me too. my safety valve, but it's hard to enforce something on a thousand people. That's what I found. Yeah. So what's nice about like Yorkie and Husky is like as soon as people install dependencies, which they'll have to do to run the project in development, if they haven't yep. run the project in development, like that's, that's a warning sign. If they're making changes and they don't even <laughs> test visually that like, oh yeah, this is working the way I want. Yep. Uh, that could be an issue. Uh, but sometimes if you have really good unit tests, like you don't need to, uh, like if there's, you know, some like regex pattern that you want to change. And that does happen, by the way. We're both laughing at that, but I have personally done it and I'm sure others have too, where you literally go to the GitHub page, you click edit and you type something and press save, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why having it in CI can be can be useful as well. So basically having a process to catch all these things is uh, we're really talking about using automation. You know, if it can be automated, then it's a good process that you can use this for. Anything you could take out of the human elements, also one less thing you have to look at when you're doing a code review. And you can look at the important stuff and not, did I use tabs instead of spaces? Yeah, absolutely. I, and for the things like tabs for spaces that, you know, some people might feel very strongly on, I have a, a tip for that too that I like to use is that for whatever convention, if there are people who feel really strongly about it, We'll, uh, usually set aside maybe like 30 minutes or, or half a day, depending on like how distributed the team is, uh, where people can vote on what they'd like it to be. And, you know, on some thread somewhere, uh, you know, maybe an issue, maybe it's in some kind of chat. People can make their arguments for why they think, you know, we should use this convention versus another convention. And then, whatever the vote comes out to be and everybody gets the same votes. Like anybody who's touching that code gets a vote and it doesn't matter how senior or junior you are. Like if the seniors make their arguments aren't, and aren't able to convince the juniors, then th- that's too bad. <laughs> you should have argued better. Uh, and you won't be able to bring that up, discuss it ever again for three months. And in three months, if people want, you know, they can put it on their calendars and they can bring it up again. We can come back to it if they still don't like it and we can have another vote. But for three months, at least, there's no more discussing that because I've seen a lot of cases where, you know, like every day in stand up, people are arguing about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the same grudge. The same thing comes up over and over again. And you think the issue is dead, but, you know, you're hearing about it for the next three months every day at stand up and you're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it also it poisons the culture of the team, too. Yes, it does. What do you think about comments? There was a, a time there when people said uh, comments are a confession of weakness. It means your code's not clear. I don't quite subscribe to that. But then there's the old, uh, you know, you see the method is called um, get foo and the comment is it gets foo. Mm-hmm. So obviously we don't want those. So what's your what what's your advice? How do you convey this to somebody who hasn't done what you think they should do? So my advice is always like first figure out if there's a way that you could rewrite the code so that you don't need the comment. Because often when you feel like you need a comment, it can be a sign that there's something in the code that isn't as self-explanatory as it could be. Uh, in a lot of cases, that's, you know, a poorly named like variable or function or something like that. You know, maybe instead of uh, git foo, maybe it's named, um, you know, do X or something like that, you know, which doesn't really tell you anything. 
And that's a contrived example, but there, there are so many cases where, you know, just looking at the function, if someone is dropping that file and they don't even know what the file does yet, you know, if they don't even have like a vague idea of what this function might do, you know, there might be a problem. You know, one of the tips that I have a lot when I'm writing my own code for this, and I 100% agree with you, by the way, on these comments, is that if I don't know what the function is going to do yet, I actually name it foo. Because it forces me to rename that like immediately. Like I, I mm-hmm. write the function out and I look at the logic. And when I'm done writing the logic, I look at it and go, what is this doing? And that sometimes it actually, I find, you know what? The reason I couldn't name this is because it's doing two things and I need to write this in two functions. Mm, yeah. So it's just a technique I've picked up for myself to kind of safeguard it. Uh, I don't know if I'd go out publicly, although I just did and tell people to write functions called foo, but <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's good to think about. If I see a comment, the first thing I do is say, how can I get rid of this comment? Because that's technical debt, in my opinion. Yeah. You know. Well, just as bad for me is when I see some, th- some code and I have no idea why they did it that way. I can see what the code does, but I can't see why you did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you a simple example. Why is there a set timeout around that code? You, you, I can see that you're, you're forcing it to wait a tick. There must be some reason why you had to do that. And so you can yeah. just say, I've got a, there's a binding error here, or I have to do this because of issue 2758. And you actually point to a late, uh, to something that explains some nastiness that caused that. Or there's a business rule yeah. that says, in order to calculate the tax for this locale in Pennsylvania, I have to stand on my head and click my heels together. Yep. In other words, if a comment is a, it expresses mm-hmm. a, the business need for that code, I think it's a great comment. I agree. Yeah. And, and sometimes like, I, I definitely agree that adding a comment can be helpful in, in those cases, oftentimes. But in the case where you have a set timeout, for example, and it's not clear like why you have the set timeout, it can often be useful to like create a tiny, tiny utility function that literally just wraps like set timeout mm-hmm. and uh, name it something that describes like why you're doing it or, or yes. the context that you need to do it. Uh, and, and that way too, like you can, you can very easily find where that specific hack is needed uh, versus like all the other times when you might be using set timeout for some other purpose. So that if you come up with a better solution later, like you know how to solve that problem better. You basically labeled the problem. And you've guaranteed that you've labeled the problem. That's a great uh, idea. As long as people are using that function. That's a great idea. I'm so with you there. There's, and it does end up with this where you'll end up in some cases with a one or two line function simply because the way it was written was like a set timeout, not clear what it was being used for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you'll end up with a function name at least. And it's like, and the function name could be something simply like what Word said, must do this to avoid tax implications in Pennsylvania, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and I really love to include links to documentation yes. in my code. So if I'm, if I'm using a project and I'm using like a particular method from this project, uh, then I'll link to like the API doc for that method so that when people are, are going back and, you know, figuring out, uh, you know, what, uh, what this does to get like a, a more detailed description of it, sometimes IntelliSense can give you that information and be, and be really helpful. Not all projects have IntelliSense, and sometimes the IntelliSense just isn't enough. 
because sometimes it'll say like, oh yeah, this can be um, a string or an object or a number, but you don't necessarily know when it's a string or an object or a number and <laughs> it still doesn't give you enough information. So like having those links to, to documentation and in uh, other resources that can help you write that code um, or that did help you write that code the first time. Like before you close those tabs, you know, copy that URL and paste it in. Yep. I, I think that's, I, I think it's a code review should tell somebody if they miss something like that. Or, or, yeah. or if in a, in a code review and you're talking with somebody and you have a big discussion about a particular point um, and you've resolved it, I think that's a great time for a comment that re- either references where that conversation took place or something like that. I don't need the, the thing get foo gets foo. I need, how did we decide to do this? I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah, there are a few different goals that I use in code reviews. I guess there are questions that I ask. Like, will this result in a bug? Like, is this difficult to figure out? Like, it, do I have to like read it a few times? Or, you know, does it, is it difficult to figure out what's going on? Or maybe I can't figure out what's going on at all? Is it difficult to maintain? Like, as we make changes, uh, will, will we be more likely to create bugs? Or, you know, will it be, uh, really slow to build on this feature? And is it very likely to require a major refactor very soon because of changing requirements that, that we know of? Uh, and if it's not one of those things, uh, you know, if it is just like a, a nitpick that isn't going to cause any of those problems, then I, I do try to let it go. And I think that's another important point. Like if there's something that just like you don't like personally, but if you're really honest with yourself, it's not going to cause a real problem then I, I think I think we can drop it. <laughs> Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it. And maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRx Redux on the front end, and .NET Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you got a project that's keeping you up at night, shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. And we're back. And we were just talking about how comments or maybe making your code more clear and the questions that you can actually ask yourself during code reviews can help these things out. Uh, something you mentioned I'd like to hit on a little bit deeper, though, was internal docs. Like you mentioned having links to docs, but what about internal docs for the teams? You mentioned that you use these. In, in what way do they help? Yeah, so this is one of the things that can really make it a lot easier for people to um, be familiar with like overall architecture or, or how to do sort of higher level things that maybe spend many files, like, you know, what you have to do whenever you add a new route. You know, sometimes you have to, you know, go into a routes file and add something there. And then you have to add a, you know, a views file. And sometimes there are layouts that you have to reference. 
and, and walking through that whole process can be very useful in internal documentation so that when people have to do that kind of thing, they sort of have a checklist of everything that needs to be done. Uh, and they also get a little bit more context of things that they might have to consider uh, when they're when they're building this. You know, for example, uh, options on a route that you're using that like will be invisible unless you're looking at a route that specifically uses that option. You know, for example, like whether that route requires authentication. What about things like uh, helpers, uh, snippets, for example? Do you make use of those in code reviews? I do. I, I actually have one more thing to like one more benefit of internal docs that I'd like to, to mention that real quick. Sure. Go for it. Is that when you're bringing someone new onto a team, something I really, really like to validate my internal docs is to have that person before they ask any questions about the code base. Just go through those internal docs and, uh, you know, open issues and pull requests, uh, for when things aren't clear. And that way you're making your docs more clear for everyone who's already on the team too, because I, I've seen a lot of cases. It happens in, I think, l- literally every single project that I've been a part of. Some part of the documentation becomes out of date at some point yep. because someone made a change and they forgot that this is a change that will require a change to documentation. And unfortunately, we do not have AI advanced enough to detect that kind of thing during continuous integration. And people often forget themselves like, oh, yeah, we do. We do actually have this documented or, you know, this will require a change in documentation. It's something that's easy to overlook, especially as everyone gets more and more familiar with the app. That's a great point. I, I agree with that because what happens a lot of times, too, is even if you know something's changed, you get caught up in getting your own work done and you may not go back and make the PR to it, but making that part of like a, almost like a new team member orientation, right? Yeah. Like a, like a hazing process. There you go. Well, not a hazing <laughs> process because it, it really isn't a test of them. It's a test of you. No, exactly. And if you've communicated right, those things are, should be clear. I find mm-hmm. a lot of times when people come back and ask the same questions over and over again, new team members, that's a great thing of, you know what? I shouldn't have to say this over and over again. I've done a poor job explaining this. Let me put this into the documentation that we have. So yeah. at least it's an attempt to get it out there in a better way. And, and I think it's important to frame it uh, the right way with new hires, that they know that this is not a test of them and that when they ask questions, it doesn't mean that you know they're stupid or they've done something wrong. Like You're having them take a look at the documentation before answering questions because you know that there are things you can improve in the documentation and you want their help to figure out how and what, like what. It's got to be a good feeling too, to be able to make a PR like your first week in a project too, even if it's just yeah. for docs. I mean, that's an important piece. So, and it, and it really does, it really does help people feel a lot more comfortable because it, it also like the things that they're really interested about or really confused about, they get chances to reach out to the people who know the most about that on the team personally. And Chris, I'd like to come back to the, the snippet side of things. I know yeah. I'm a big user of them, but I know you use them in interesting ways too. Could you talk about how that helps you? Yeah. So there's a, a feature of VS Code and, and some other projects that have similar features uh, where you can define workspace snippets. And this is relatively new in, in VS Code. If you add a .VS Code folder to your directory and then you uh, create files with the, the code hyphen snippet extension, then you can define uh, snippets that everyone will be able to use for that workspace, which is really, really nice for maintaining conventions. Um, you know, for example, if you, in a view project, for example, every time uh, you add styles, most of the time you want them to, you know, use SCSS 
and use module scoping, CSS module scoping. Uh, then you can create a snippet that allows people to like create that style block with just, you know, three characters or something like that on their keyboard. And something that goes along with that, that is more powerful in many ways than snippets is using generators. So a lot of like backend frameworks, especially like Rails is quite famous for its, its generators to help you create a new model or controller or view or something like that. And there's a, a project in JavaScript that you can use called Hygen that allows you to write your own generators for your project. So for example, one thing that I really like to do is whenever you create like a new utility function, you can have a, a script in your package.json where I usually type like npm run new or yarn new util. And that'll create a new utility function and create uh, an accompanying uh, unit test right next to it. And the reason I find that really, really helpful is because a lot of times when there aren't unit tests, it's because people don't want to write the boilerplate to get them started in the first place. Like they don't want to create a file and they don't want to like import that file and then, you know, write that first test that, you know, just confirms the function isn't totally broken. By having a generator create that file and create that first unit test to just confirm that a function is exported, it makes it a lot easier to add new unit tests later. And so people are people are actually a lot more likely to to create robust unit tests. I agree. Yeah. Uh, for utility functions and other kinds of files. Ward, I'm curious. You work on uh, you're working on a big project right now with a, a decent sized team. What kinds of things that Chris is talking about kind of resonate with you here as far as what would help out? Just about everything. I'm kind of crestfallen because I don't have most of these things um, in place. And, uh, it, you know, hearing us talk about them, this is the interesting thing is that, that like I'm nodding my head up and down and I'm also at the same time saying, oh, my God. Because I know we ran so fast and we didn't do these things and we're paying an awful price for not having them, particularly as it's gone from just a small number of members. That's the way it starts, right? You start a project, there's just a few people on it and suddenly you weren't expecting it, but now you've got people coming in from all over the place and none of this was ready. All I can say is you're right, Chris, and I'm feeling the pain. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've sort of been forced to care more about these problems than most people do because when... When you're just working with one team, it's a lot easier to, to solve some of these problems interpersonally, especially when you're not remote. But because I'm almost always remote and because I'm, I'm often working with a lot of different teams at the same time, like having these things in place also makes sure that like I'm enforcing the right conventions in my code reviews and in the code that I write. Well, I found it to be a scaling technique too, because. I worked on a project that literally started out with about five people and ended up being 150 developers. And we implemented a process as we went. We put some of it up front. Uh, so we were smart enough to do that or had enough time to do that. Maybe it wasn't smart. We were given enough time to do it up front. But there were things we added along the way, which were honestly only done because we just couldn't scale. Mm -hmm. There was no way I could go and replicate myself at 150 desks around the world yeah. to do this stuff. And it would driven people crazy too. So automating this is just the way to go, in my opinion. Yeah, I like to do it actually right from the beginning because if you don't have these kinds of things at the beginning, your your code 
is going to suffer immediately. Like any code that you write is going to suffer. And, and that code is code that you're going to have to maintain later, <laughs> presumably, if things go well and you want them to go well. I hear you. I'm nodding. I'm just like, I'm just shaking my head because I know what it's like. And I think many of our listeners know what it's like to not do what you're saying, not from the beginning, to take the shortcut and the suffering is going to come and it's coming. And maybe that's a good place for us to, to end the show at is, Chris, where, where do people, and I'm, I'm feeling this way, I bet Ward is and lots of our listeners, where do you send people to learn about, here's how you get started, here's how you do these things up front? I'm glad you asked. So I actually have a, a repo called View Enterprise Boilerplate that I use for almost all of my client projects. Uh, when I'm, when I'm starting out uh, a new project or when I want to add a lot of these features to an existing project, I'll either, you know, use View Enterprise Boilerplate as my starting place or I'll pull a lot of things from there, uh, in order to, to get us set up with some, some great conventions and some great tooling so we can be productive right away. Uh, and that'll be useful. If you're not using Vue as well, uh, like a lot of, a lot of the things that we've talked about here today, like tests and generators and internal documentation and inline comments and linters, like a lot of these things have nothing to do with Vue. So you can, you can look at that project and it does have good internal documentation that walks through the tools that we're using, uh, and the different parts of the project that you can check out to learn how they're being used and, you know, links to documentation for those tools, that kind of thing. I think it's a great point because, yeah, we were, we're talking about Vue in this context and, and with your repo, but is there really anything we've talked about that is specific to Vue? I mean, nothing. I'm not seeing it. <laughs> nothing. In fact, there's nothing even specific to JavaScript or web development or necessarily development. Like any time that you're producing something with people, all of these things are important. That's great. Hey, Chris, at the end of our show, we'd like to have a segment called Someone to Follow. And in Someone to Follow, we call out somebody in the community who has inspired us in some way. We want to kind of give back a little to them and point them out to all of our listeners. Uh, to kick things off, Ward, who's your someone to follow? Well, I'm picking somebody who is not technical. She's the best interviewer I know living today. Her name is Terry Gross. She does Fresh Air at NPR. And there was recently an interview with her, and this is what I'm going to put in the show notes, in the New York Times, which she gives eight tips on how to have a conversation. And it is so appropriate to what we were talking about today, uh, because uh, how to interview anybody is as much a part of what we're talking about and how to do a code review as I can imagine. And it also will help you at parties. So what, you know, why not? <laughs> so I'm putting that in the notes. That's great. My someone to follow is somebody who a lot of people probably know already, some of our listeners, maybe not. Uh, his name is Phil Hack, a good friend of mine, known him for years, worked at Microsoft, uh, then at GitHub, and recently is uh, kind of just exploring things on his own time. And Phil recently reminded me in a, we did a video interview on a show that I do called Five Things on YouTube. And he reminded me of all the cool stuff that you can do with GitHub uh, and who would know about it more than Phil. And one of the things I loved about this was he is using in a blog post he wrote artificial intelligence to do text analysis of GitHub comments to then help reply back using positive sentiment. So I kind of felt that flowed along with the, with the show today as well. Uh, and obviously you can't automate everything with these things, but 
uh, when you're getting thousands of comments or issues, sometimes you need a little bit of help. And I found it amazing how he was using uh, serverless functions and webhooks from uh, GitHub to call them and then read the text analysis using AI with Azure and then send that back into GitHub comments. So I'll put a link into Phil himself and to the video where he talks about it and also into the blog post where he writes up exactly how to do it. Chris, who is your someone to follow? So I'm going to cheat a tiny, tiny bit. And I have actually like two things, like or like one thing and one person sort of, although the one, the first thing is a, attached to a person. So Sarah Drasner's Design for Developers Workshop uh, was just recorded and it should be on Frontend Masters very soon. Very likely by the time that this is released, uh, it'll it'll be out. And uh, that's really awesome. Sarah's had a lot of people ask her for a course like this. And Sarah's probably my favorite person in the world to give this kind of workshop. So I definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, and also Ben Hong, who's uh, at Ben Codesen on Twitter. He's just, uh, he's in the Vue community and does a lot of, uh, does a lot of work for the community. And he's one of the most compassionate, like, caring people that I know, period. Like a, a lot of people when they, when they first meet him, they immediately think to themselves, like, I, I want this person to be my friend and probably my boss. <laughs> uh, so he's, he's just like a joy to work with. He, he will improve your life just like being in your life. Um, I definitely recommend giving him a follow. That's great. And Chris, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, it's a, it's a topic that's both near and dear to me. And Ward and I discuss these kind of things often. Uh, as we're talking about these things at events and conferences with people. So thanks for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge in this area. You bet. I, I echo that. Oh, thank you. It was, it was great. Uh, great being here and talking about this stuff. And hopefully we can get you back on the show at a future date and talk a little about your uh, view boilerplate for enterprise and your experience with scaling view apps. I'd love to. And thank you everybody for listening to our real talk JavaScript podcast. And you can catch us here every Tuesday morning. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealtalkJS.